You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. The idea of what does this degree have, what is it worth, right, it becomes as important as going to college. And with the changing demographics within the United States, first-generation Americans, the, an increase in, in, the demo, in demographic changes, the very value of what it means to go to college is changing. And we can provide a large number of students that are sufficiently trained and sufficiently fit, and the fit part is perhaps the most important, so that the Warden Service doesn't have to worry about having a bunch of students in the woods. That they've got the background, they've got the training, they've got the map reading, the navigation, and they're young and agile, and so they can clamber over rocks and gullies and trees and rivers and streams without necessarily getting hurt quite as easily as I would. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo, and you are listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 287. Unity, Education, Search and Rescue airing for the first time on Sunday, March 19, 2017. For more than half a century, Unity College has provided a high-quality, innovative, and yet practical education to students in the field of environmental sustainability. Today we speak with Unity College President Dr. Malik Peter Corey and with Professor Mick Wormersley, Faculty Advisor to the Unity College Search and Rescue Team. Thank you for joining us. Love Main Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Love Main Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Tickets for Maine Live, a day of insightful talks by the business and creative people shaping the future of our state, are on sale now. Join host Dr. Lisa Belisle and 14 mesmerizing speakers for a day that will inspire conversation and connection. This fourth Maine Live is on Thursday, March 30th at USM's Abramson Center. Go to MainLiveEvent.com for more information and to purchase your tickets. My next guest is Dr. Malik Peter Corey, who is president of Unity College. He started at Unity in 2012 as the senior vice president for external affairs, following positions at Upper Iowa University, Culver Stockton College, Paul Smith's College, and the University of Maine at Fort Kent, among other places, I understand. You've yes. Been, you've been all over the place. Yes. It's been, it's been a wonderful career in higher education. But you started your whole life out, your whole life journey in Sierra Leone. Yes, I was actually born in a small country called Sierra Leone in West Africa. I grew up uh, in a small country called the Gambia, which is known as the smiling coast of West Africa, to uh, a Lebanese father and an English mother, and spent a little bit of time in England before coming to the States. So I've been all over the world. 
why did you decide that higher education was your calling? Well, well growing up uh, in West Africa, the, the perspective of higher education or education as a whole is so different from that in the United States. I mean, it's such a privilege that only a few get the, uh, the ability to get an education. So once I got in the, uh, the ability to get an education, I realized that uh, I would like to dedicate my life to making sure that anyone who wants an education, who deserves an education, should get one. And so looking at uh, the higher education system in the United States, it's probably one of the most forward-thinking industries in the world. And what better way to spend your life than to continue to work within that industry to make sure that anybody who wants an education gets one. What is it specifically about higher education that appeals to you? Absolutely. I think that uh, as a society, uh, um, you know, the world is getting smaller. With the advent of technology, uh, the whole idea of global citizens, uh, it becomes very important that uh, in addition to learning how to do a skill, an individual needs to understand where their place is in the world, being able to communicate, cultural competency. And so the idea of a well-rounded individual comes uh, as part of higher education. The liberal arts and sciences are a, a really good base for everyone who wants uh, uh, education. So you get that, you learn a skill, and you become a well-rounded individual who is a global citizen and able to um, basically function in a world that's getting smaller where cultural competency is a key element in, in uh, basically the survival of our planet. Unity is a very uh, unique place. It's a very unique college. It's only been around for... 51 years. So it's relatively young, and yes. it's it's in the center, roughly the center of Maine. Yes. And you have really quite the diversity of um, things that you offer students for such a small place. Yeah, I mean, we are America's environmental college. We uh, Our entire curriculum is based on the very concept of sustainability science, which means that, you know, we are, everything we do is designed to be uh, relevant in the green economy, right? Uh, we understand that no matter what you're going to do in life, there is nothing, no job that you're going to take no career that you're going to have, that does not interact with our natural resources. And so whether it's in agriculture, in energy, in conservation law, in, uh, in policy, um, we understand that our students need to have that based on education. So we focus on environmental sciences. We're very proud of that. And we've got an array of majors within that. But uh, our job is to make sure that these students grow up to be, uh, like I love saying this, global citizens. And that is a, that's our mission in life. It's adding that concept of theory and application, the liberal arts and sciences and the career into, into a student, whether they're going to go to grad school or, or get a job in, in their industry. What type of student do you t tend to attract to Unity College? Sure. I mean, right now, uh, we, we have a national draw. About 70% of our student population is from out of state. Um, but um, predominantly, anybody who really wants to work in the environmental career. We've got a lot of conservation law enforcement students, captive wildlife care and education students, outdoor recreation, adventure therapy, a lot of first-generation Americans, um, uh, first-generation students, sorry, and, and, the, and folks who really want to be kind of uh, work in a tactile environment. We're highly experiential. We're, we're highly immersive. We really believe that our students need to not just uh, learn from a textbook with the hard sciences, but apply that within, within the field. And so uh, a lot of students who really want kind of that immersion of both the theory and the application get to be attracted to Unity College. When you describe a, a first-generation student, you mean mm. a student who is the first in their family to go to college? Yes. 
we, we about uh, 85% of our student population actually are first generation students. Uh, so they're the first to go to college in, in this field. So, uh, and, and, it's an, and it's actually a, uh, um, um, a real uh, feather in our cap as a private school. There is the misnomer about affordability. And you know, we are very proud of the fact that compared to our peers uh, on the national scale, our tuition is very, very affordable. We, we give some, some, some good uh, uh, scholarships for those uh, who want to come there. But most importantly, the value that families have in investing in going to a college like Unity uh, is paid off because if you were to look at our alums, we're very proud of them working in the federal, uh, in federal state jobs in, as entrepreneurs. And so families understand that going to a private school, they get a, a high-touch, highly immersive uh, education, and it's really applicable into an industry. And our, our placement rates into grad school, into, into, into getting into careers is quite high, which is a value proposition for us. Have you noticed over the time that you've been in higher education that families are expecting more that their children will come out and be able to get a job and have this investment that they've made in their children's education pay off? Absolutely. I think it is uh, the entire industry is uh, wrestling with that a little bit too because um, I would say until about 20 years ago, it was just you get to go to college and, and the experience of being at college was in many ways enough. But with the introduction of the GI Bills in, in, in the late 70s, the more that the concept of higher education is expanded to, to all Americans, because back then, less and less people went to college. It was really for a special few. The idea of what does this degree, what is it worth, right, it becomes as important as going to college. And with the changing demographics within the United States, first-generation Americans, the, an increase in, in, the demo, uh, in demographic changes, the very value of what it means to go to college is changing. And so uh, one of the things I think that Unity College has been able to do over the last 10 years is show family that you don't have to choose between a career and being a well-rounded student. So, uh, um, you know, the way we teach students really gives them a sense of what they're going to be doing. And families really respond to that because they're not just sending their students to Unity College in order to just get the experience and whatever happens after that happens, but really with a focus on what is my daughter, what is my son going to do after they graduate, which is why Unity College, uh, we are very proud of the fact that for a small college like Unity, we have one of the largest environmental career fairs in New England. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we had over 100 uh, um, um, organizations come to Unity College. It's gotten so popular, we're now opening it to some other colleges. We're opening it to the local community for people who are looking for jobs. So we understand that every family that sends their daughter or their son to Unity is either looking to go and work in... Um, a career in the environmental sciences, or they're looking to go to grad school. They are not just coming to Unity for the uh, for the idea of going to college. And I think our mission, our dedication to that outcome, is why I think we are doing uh, um, the things that we're doing right now in where we're investing in our faculty, where we're investing in our partnerships, and 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 why with I think well I know that uh, families from all over the country are coming to Unity College for their children um, to go to. We are also beginning to expand uh, in our master's program where we have a number of individuals in middle management uh, um, jobs across the country who are looking for that master's degree. So we introduced the concept of a professional science master's degree in natural resource management, sustainability science. And so we are expanding that market as well because uh, there's a lot of folks out there, adults, who can't come to the traditional four-year, but really want uh, an education. 
you've talked about developing Maine as uh, education land. Yes. What does Absolute, that mean? Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, um, as an individual who is a first-generation American and living in vacation land, um, it's really interesting for me that, you know, Maine has three climate zones. Our natural resources is abundant. I mean, from, from the coast to the northern Maine woods to, the, the, you know, the urban lifestyle of, of uh, Portland, we have such a beautiful uh, landscape that it's uh, it's surprising to me that with uh, you know just I think last year over four million tourists drove up Route One to Bar Harbor. Why aren't they dropping their kids off to go to college? I mean, why isn't Maine the center of natural resource education across the world? If you look at what we have to offer as a state, well, I don't think any state should be able to compete with us. We are we are resource rich. Um, uh, Mainers are hardworking. Um, the landscape is beautiful. Uh, uh, we have wonderful colleges here. And so in my mind, as much as I love, uh, you know, Maine being vacation land, I think that if Maine could become education land, we would uh, uh, jumpstart yet another economy where it's not just a few that come to Maine for an education, but anybody who wants to learn how to work in the environmental century. How, and so for me, education land means if, you go, if we're going to, I think, Portland Press Herald a couple of years ago um, uh, printed an article that we had like 48 million visitors to Maine. I don't know how, you know, I'm, I'm assuming those numbers are right. I didn't fact check them. Uh, but it, what, why are they dropping off their kids here? And why, why isn't Maine one huge uh, uh, ed uh, education land where students are learning firsthand how to work in what is becoming a glo global issues, energy, agriculture, uh, um, forest management, conservation, preservation. It's a perfect state for it. And so for me, uh, I, uh, we are already at Unity College making Maine our classroom. Our students are in all four corners of the state of Maine uh, learning how to apply their craft as part of their education. For me, it's just surprising that the entire state does not just adopt that. So what are the barriers? I think um, higher education has a very, it's a, it's a very old industry. There's a, th there's a way we do things. And um, sometimes we enjoy teaching what we want. It's a diff uh, instead of what folks need. Uh, I think the very concept of edu education, the industry right now, is in flux. I know that the public trust on education is is it valuable? Like to your earlier question, um, I think the the entire model was built on historically where it's it's um, it was designed um, to uh, in a in a with a model that no longer is valuable. At, in my mind. So I think a lot of colleges are trying to reinvent themselves. So, but I think we're stuck within that, uh, with that cycle of this is what we do. I think for me, one of my biggest fears is if we as an industry, when I, I'm talking higher education, does not really reinvent itself to remain independent, but relevant to the folks who hire our students, then we are going to lose out because education is always going to be there. But the very nature of our industry, I think, needs to be reinvented because spending four years of your life or two years of your life or six years of your life at a college needs to be more than just an experience, but a value added that prepares you for the, for the world. So I think um, the, the model needs to be looked at, which is why at Unity College, we have started to ask the question, how do we remain independent, but yet remain uh, relevant? And how does uh, the, the, the very idea of you know, this idea of, I hate this, this uh, adage, they say those who can't do teach. And, and that bothers me as a lifelong educator. I, I, you know, I want to tell the world, no, my faculty, they can teach, but they also do. 
right? When my biologist professor it gets done in the lab with her students learning about um, a specific um, uh, tardigrade, for example, uh, as part of the, they go out to the ocean and actually two years ago discovered a new species of tardigrade. And what is it? Tardigrade, tardigrade is, a, is a microscopic uh, um, 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 a sea creature that basically lives off the coast of Maine. And so, so, uh, so in my mind, um, faculty, uh, they, they are the ones who carry the innovation. They are the ones who basically uh, uh, bestow knowledge on students. However, with the creation of technology, you can get information out of your phone right now. So how do we take the information that's readily available, the technology that is there, and teach students how to be global citizens? And so for me, that's, that's the answer, is that uh, we have to design a new model so that, the, so that the public understands that going to college is more than just what you see in the movies uh, and, and, and reduced it down to just an experience, but more about preparing yourselves to becoming a responsible global citizen within a global economy. And so I think the, 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 what's stopping us is the model hasn't been built yet. What we're trying to do is figure out what that model is. It's an industry that needs to reinvent itself a little bit. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of colleges out there doing this. So it's not like it's a novel concept. But as an industry, we have some work to do. Do you have ideas on how to build this new model? We are actually right. We have a lot of ideas how, how, how to do that. And, and I think what makes Unity College really special is we are small enough. We are nimble enough that it, we are a great incubator for this idea. So right now, Unity College is going through a multi-year uh, uh, market research about how students want to learn, what are the trends in the environmental sciences. We are, we are working on this idea that um, why do we have to separate the concept of a good education with practical ac um, applicability of what students do? So we have, for example, a, a team on campus right now working on the first and second year experience. Because as a private college, uh, we've got some flexibility in what does a student need to learn as a baseline uh, uh, for, for the 21st century? What is the core learning? Because if you, I mean, a lot of folks talk about the liberal arts and sciences. And if you go trace it back to its roots, you know, it was, the, the concept came from Greece. It was adopted by the Romans. They added military service to it, and it was then co-opted by the United States higher education. And, it, and the idea for the liberal arts and sciences is what is the core that every citizen should know in addition to their career? Maybe it's time we took a really hard look at that and see what does a 21st century student need to learn in this modern society as the rules continue to change. But at the same time, while knowing that, how do you connect that to a global economy so that when students graduate, they, ha they, ha they have a career that is relevant, that is fulfilling, but, but it's not at the expense of just knowing how to do something, but understanding why. So those are the conversations that we are having with the first and second year. We are looking also at this idea that um, in higher education, there is, there is the concept of you learn in, in a vacuum, you go do an internship, then you go to a job, and then they gotta reteach you how to, why, why are those elements separate? Why, isn't a, why aren't institutions partnering more rapidly with uh, organizations, corporations, where by the time a student graduates, that they've got an opportunity to have actually experienced it, not just in one semester, but as part of the very ethos of how they learn. I mean, I would love to see like, uh, at Unity someday where every career that we offer, every major that we offer, we have a living enterprise that is a manifestation of that. For example, um, we have an, a, a sustainable agriculture program. 
Um, about 10 years ago, the only way we thought that is we had a mock greenhouse, a small patch of land. Now we have a real life farm. We have 25 students working there as work study. We have a farm ma manager. We have faculty members doing research there, whether it's, a, whether it's reviving chestnuts in the Northeast or how to use a greenhouse to be more efficient because of some of the energy concerns. So all of a sudden, we are blending this very idea that you've got uh, an industry and you've got higher ed. And we're using this both commercially because our, our, our farmer is selling food, uh, is selling uh, um, um, uh, produce, sorry. But at the same time, we are a community-based center where local folks sell their products there. But it's also an educational facility where our students and our faculty get to experience. So you all of a sudden are blending these worlds that are historically separate. Why not do the same for all of our different careers? And so for me, the idea is how do we take the wonderful majors that we have and really have uh, living manifestations of them that are sustainable enterprises, not just an act. I want to debunk this idea of it's an academic exercise, which ultimately means nothing happens, to it's an academic exercise means it's an innovative idea that manifests in itself into a sustainable enterprise. So for, for us, that is the work that we're doing right now. And it's a risk. It's a change in philosophy. Some of the truest kind of go, whoa, this is not how higher education needs to work. But we are small enough, we're dedicated enough, we're passionate enough that if we are successful, I think we will partner with major organizations across the state of Maine, across New England, across the country, and our students get the best of both worlds and graduate ready to be the next uh, um, uh, employee, the next innovator, the next entrepreneur that is working in the, in, in the green industry. And that is our goal. Considering that you were born in Sierra Leone and mm -hmm. you've been really all over the place, mm -hmm. why would you choose to spend so much time in Maine? Why would you choose to have this be your home state? I've said this a few times before, and it's a bit of a hokey story, but I can't help it because it has the benefit of being true. Um, you know. I grew up in the hospitality industry with my father. We, and um, after work, I would wait, stay up late for him to come home, and we would always watch uh, episodes of MASH. And um, and then, in, in for me, uh, there was this Hawkeye Pierce who used to write um, um, letters to his father in Crabapple Cove in Maine. So when it was time for me to go and do go, you know, go into the world. I fell in love with the concept of Crabapple Cove. Now, granted, it's not a real place, but after you know, um, uh, you know, seven years of watching Mash with your dad, uh, I just fell in love with the concept of Maine. So I came, I came to Maine, and and uh, really fell in love with the Saint John Valley. Uh, I moved up to Fort Kent. It is a beautiful uh, small town, very uh, well insulated, um, very friendly. The, the entire town adopted me, not just the university. And, and I started, um, I coached uh, uh, in, in, in Fort Kent, so I got to travel all over the state. And I really fell in love. So, so the idea of what happened with uh, Hawkeye Pierce and his father uh, manifested in my life as I communicated with my father in Gambia because I was, I was in the States and um, just fell in love with the state. And there's everything in the state of Maine. I mean, there's the ocean. Uh, and like I said earlier, so I could not think of another state I'd, I'd want to live at. And when I decided to move on for career, my, my hope was always to come back. And originally I was going to go for about three years and six and a half years later, I, I got the right opportunity to come back to Unity College. So for me, I, um, you know, barring any unforeseen uh, issue, I'm, I'm hoping to, to die in Maine. 
Uh, I fell in love with the state, and uh, I think as a first-generation American, as a first-generation Mainer, I have an appreciation for this state. I have an appreciation for the Four Seasons. I have an appreciation for everything that this state has to offer that I think just some of my, my peers and my colleagues take for granted. So for me, it's not just I love Unity College, it's not just I love higher education, but I get to do it in a state that actually met the expectations of my dreams. You have a lot of interesting ideas about yes. higher education and also about Unity College. Mm -hmm. Where do you hope to see where do you hope to see yourself, let's say twenty or thirty years? Where do you hope to see Unity College? Sure. Do you think you'll be in the same place? Why not? Uh, I mean, I, for me, uh, I think that the, you know this concept of the grass is always greener is not necessarily a real thing. No matter where I go, um, I am going to be trading one opportunity for another, one problem for another. If I could work with my faculty and my staff and my trustees and my community at Unity College and turn Unity College into a model of what small private higher ed needs to be in the next 25 years with the resources to allow for innovation, yet the, the, the practical application in partnering with industry, um, in 25 years, I could see my direct reports, I could see myself really using the model that we built as a way to infuse that into uh, higher education across the country. I would love to be a destination in which people can come and see all of our sites across Maine, all of the partnerships we have with other businesses, all of the innovations that we have in preparing students as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a living embodiment of how other small private colleges and other colleges could use pieces of what we have created as a way to keep this industry sustained. So for me, success is Unity College becomes the model with which uh, uh, different schools get to adopt to keep this, what I consider a very, very critical uh, piece of our society, higher education, alive and well. Because one of my concerns is I'm beginning to see us lo losing um, uh, uh, um, this this notion that a lot of the world wants, which is the very concept of higher education, uh, a liberal arts and science education based with a career, we're, we're getting sometimes into too much credentialing and not, not enough education. And there's a lot of rhetoric out there as if it was an either or. Either you are this out of touch liberal where you learn to think and can't do anything which is a stereotype I don't agree with or you are a widget fixer and God forbid you know why you're fixing the widget. I think those two stereotypes is what's wrong today with society and we need to really go back to our roots which is combining the liberal arts and sciences while preparing folks for a career or graduate school. So for me, if Unity College using our framework of sustainability science to merge theory and application and relevance becomes uh, comes a, a new model, then I'm hoping that for me in 25 years, I have built something that will stand the test of time. And that for me is a definition of success. If every student in the world who wants an education can get one, and they get an education, not just a credential, not just a GPA, and the, one of the major issues that, is, that we're dealing right now in higher education is tuition. If we can find a model that makes tuition manageable, where this concept of just keep increasing tuition until it's out of reach for the people who need it the most, then I think I would have been successful. And, how, and you can't do that with the traditional approach where students come, learn, and go because the, the old adage is you get a huge endowment. Not every college has that uh, opportunity. So how do you keep tuition manageable so that uh, the students who deserve an education do not not have it 
because they can't afford it. And that's a very complex uh, situation that deals with the relevancy of education and the practicality of its affordability. And that is the model I'd love to, I'm, I am working on that hopefully can change the industry over the next 10 years. Tell me about your model just a little bit. Sure, I, I think right now, um, we as in higher education um, really have been experts in siloing the different aspects of what we do. Uh, whether it's disciplines, whether it's um, 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 uh, what we define as education. So for me, the, the model is going to be uh, creating some sort of partnership and flexibility within the curriculum that does, n that does not affect the, the, the core of what you have to learn, but allows the students the flexibility to not have to stop their life for four years or two years. And one of the ways that that has been manifested right now is through the concept of online learning. But even then, the, the online learning has become almost a separate entity from the traditional education. And I think that a merging of the two, the creation of flexibility, the, the working more with organizations and corporations and government in order to find out what they are looking for in a workforce and giving them those students, not having to choose between the worker and the thinker, but really the well-rounded, is the model that I would like to create. And so one is changing sometimes even the definition of what it means to be a faculty. Because right now, um, you know, uh, some of the best faculty in the world, including some of them at Unity, they don't just teach in their class, but they're out there with their students. They're connecting them. to. They have partnerships. For example, our agriculture faculty member. He has personal relationships with, with different farms. And our agriculture students get to work with real-life farmers on a day-to-day -day basis. He's not just some academic who's sitting in a classroom teaching from a book, going out to a plot of grass, and then saying to the student, go and figure it out for yourself. So how do we create that connection? Because what I'm beginning to see, even in large corporations, is that they are beginning to go back to the old apprenticeship, where they're training their own people for, for, for jobs. But if we let that happen, we lose a core element of our society, which is the well-rounded student. So how do we merge that? There's also become a blur in the U.S. between what is the role of a for-profit, of a private school, of an R1, of a four-year school, of a community college, of a trade school. There's a huge blur. So the market is confused about who should go to what and why and what are the benefits and the like. Creating that clarity making sure that we all do what we do best for our society is a, is a complex conversation. So for me, I think it is partnering with industries outside of the traditional norm of higher ed to create something that does not exist today. Well, I'm 100% behind what you just said. Thank you. And having had many, many years of education myself, I'm hoping that you are going to be leading the charge or part of the forefront um, dealing with the higher education issues. I've been speaking with Dr. Malik Corey, who is the president of Unity College, starting in 2012 as the senior vice president for external affairs, and then following additional positions in multiple places, really across the state and the country. You're doing good work. Keep it up. Thank you, ma'am. Love Main Radio is brought to you by The Front Room, The Corner Room, The Grill Room, and Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Chef Harding Lee Smith's restaurants where atmosphere, great service, and palate-pleasing options are available to suit any culinary mood. For more information, go to theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love Main Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. 
The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Nancy Simmons, Elizabeth Hoy, and many more. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormaine.com. Today it is my great pleasure to have with me Dr. Michael, also known as Mick Wolmersley, and I'm sure that I'm mispronouncing your name. Apologies. That's actually pretty good. Okay, good. Who is a professor at Unity College and the faculty advisor to the Unity College Search and Rescue Team. Well, thanks so much for coming in. You're very welcome. I'm pleased to be here. You were telling me that the reason that your last name is a little unique is because it's actually... It's English. I'm British. Um, I'm, I'm from Yorkshire, and that's a, that's a Yorkshire place name, actually. So there's a small town called Wormersley in Yorkshire. So one, I guess, the first obvious question, which I'm going to have to ask, is how did you end up in Maine? Well, I just was getting done. I was in the last couple of years of my PhD in environmental policy, and I needed a job. My research funding had run out. Um, and so Unity College was looking for people to teach in its general education program, and, and I landed the job before I'd quite graduated with the PhD. I was ABD, as they say, all but dissertation. And uh, so I found myself at Unity College, and I've stayed there ever since. Unity College is a really, it's a really unique school here in Maine. We have a lot of great educational institutions, and Unity is I like to thing. think it is unique. I like to think of it as... Um, a unique institution on a nationwide level and, and sort of a hidden gem of Maine's colleges. So tell me what it was about Unity besides the fact that it offered you a job, but what was it about specifically that school that drew you? Well, I, w I was very interested in getting a place that allowed me to express all the different aspects of my personality and, and interests, and search and rescue is something I've done since um, I was in the Royal Air Force. I've been involved in search and rescue since 1979. And Unity College having a search and rescue team was quite important. Uh, but, you know, it was also important for me to, to teach at an environmental college that had um, a progressive and activist approach. And Unity College meets that definition as well. For people who aren't familiar with the term search and rescue, what does that actually mean? Well, search is when you're out there looking for people that are lost, and rescue is after you find them and you get them back to safety. Um, the rescue part is actually um, the easy part, generally speaking. That's emergency medical uh, technology and, and also evacuation technology. Search is very difficult, particularly if you have um, an awful lot of ground to cover, and Maine is big, and we often have an awful lot of ground to cover. So one would think that, um, one would not necessarily think of uh, an, a college that's known for an environmental education as also having this search and rescue aspect to it. it it's, it's not necessarily a natural connection, but the, a big facet of the Unity College uh, degree, one of the most important degree programs at Unity College is our conservation law enforcement program. And that prepares students for work in the uniformed uh, law enforcement agencies that deal with wildlife protection and um, essentially rangering around the country. And those students need a background in search and rescue. Uh, our big connection is, of course, to the Maine Warden Service, which is another national treasure. I, I'm very pleased to have spent you know, these last 17 years working regularly with the Maine Warden Service and, and in fact, to have placed 
quite a few of my students in the main warden service. Um, you know, since we've had Northwoods Law, we've actually seen the warden service on TV, and so we know what they do firsthand, or at least from the TV. Um, you know, and it's it's a wonderful job they do, and it's a very important job. They have over 500 search and rescues a year. And for comparison, Unity College might get involved, Unity College search and rescue team might get involved with four or five of those. So they do the bulk of the work. We get called in when they need uh, extra people to do large-scale searches, and that, that's our specialty. And we can provide a large number of students that are sufficiently trained and sufficiently fit, and the fit part is perhaps the most important, so that the one service doesn't have to worry about having a bunch of students in the woods. You know, they've got the background, they've got the training, they've got the map reading, the navigation, and they're young and agile, and so they can clamber over rocks and gullies and trees and rivers and streams without necessarily getting hurt quite as easily as I would. And, and that's an important facet for the main warden service. But you also began this when you were young and agile. You, you joined the Royal Air Force uh, when you were 17. Yeah, that was a long time ago. I didn't start, uh, I had a year of technical training before I joined the Royal Air Force Mountain Rescue Service, but I did spend five and a half years in Royal Air Force Mountain Rescue, and I'm still heavily involved with the uh, ex-servicemen's group that, that belongs to Royal Air Force Mountain Rescue. But I've been in this country since uh, 1986 now, and I've actually been on more American search and rescue and mountain rescue teams than I ever was on Royal Air Force Mountain Rescue teams. So I've been doing this for a long time, even in this country. So wh- what is the draw? How, how does one become interested in doing search and rescue, aside from doing it with the Air Force? But I, I would imagine you wouldn't keep doing this if, if there wasn't something about it that appealed to you. I think perhaps I have a inflated sense of duty, and it might be a mistake some of the time. Uh, you find yourself out there in bad weather and wondering what it is that you're doing and why you signed up for this. Um, but somebody has to do it, and so let's think about this. Your, your organization promotes travel to Maine and and so people are going to come to the state of Maine and some of them are going to go in the woods and some of them are going to get lost necessarily and so the great state of Maine has the Maine Warden Service and a big part of their job is to rescue people search for and rescue people from the woods and waters of the state of Maine but they simply can't have enough people it's not uh, cost effective for them to have the you know, the several hundred people on standby that it would take to run a very large area search using grid searching technique. Some of the bigger searches that we've been involved in, you know, might have upwards of 200 people uh, from all the different volunteer search and rescue organizations in the state of Maine. We have an umbrella organization, uh, Maine Association for Search and Rescue. I've been part of that now for a long time. And uh, so we, we're very sure to work with Maine Association for Search and Rescue and to, to do all the things that we need to do to certify our students and to be part of the system, to be a, a productive, responsible part of the system. We've had Kate Braystrup on the show a couple of times, and she's um, a chaplain who works. I know Kate. You know Kate. So yeah. uh, it, it, she has spoken about and written about as an author um, – some of the circumstances when the rescue isn't a rescue, it's, it's a retrieval. And the difficulties surrounding that, 
you're bringing college students into it can be tough it could be very tough um, we've had more than one occasion where our students have been first on the scene to find someone who passed away and you know on the one hand you you worry about having to protect students uh, particularly the younger students from the kinds of shocks that and, and even post-traumatic stress disorder that can occur if you have an awful lot of that but on the other hand th those students that are going to go do this for a living it's probably the case that the sooner they get exposed to some of the sadder events the better um, you know we have to teach them how to deal with that and a, a big part of my job is the advisor you know I I do occasionally go in the field still but as, as you can probably guess that's not a most effective role for me um, my most effective role is making sure that the students are ready to go in the field and part of that is are they mentally ready and um, particularly when we know that we're probably looking for someone who's you know if someone's been out there a long time if the weather's been really bad a lot of the time you may not say it out loud but you kind of know that you may be looking for someone who's already passed away and that can be very sad and it's pretty important to make sure the students are prepared and I have a, a kind of a pep talk that I make sure and give them and get them ready for that how how does one become trained in this field what are the different facets of training required in order to do search and rescue well the basic skill is can you hike in the woods and the hills and so you have to be uh, fit enough to be able to hike we use a fitness test as a you know as a basic test to find out if students can manage that uh, then we need to be able to navigate using map and compass across the woods and fields and, and to be able to, in particular since the Unity College Search and Rescue Team is most frequently doing the kind of search that we call a grid search or a line search, that requires you to be able to, to take a bearing across a piece of wooded terrain and to hold to that bearing, particularly on the left and the right sides of the line, so that you sweep across and then you pivot and sweep back in the other direction and you don't want to have a whole lot of overlap between those two so you need to be able to, to walk on a bearing pretty well you need to be able to use a GPS we need them to have at least the basic first aid and CPR uh, we like it when students go out and get more advanced first aid and CPR skills we like it when they get EMT uh, or paramedic uh, and quite a few of our students are also members of our local volunteer fire department so they often get those qualifications as a result of their other volunteer work with the volunteer fire department. We also run something called Wilderness First Responder, which is a proprietary, for a pri proprietary first aid course every, every year or so at the college, and students will participate in that. But, and this hasn't changed since I first got involved in this in 1979, the first qualification is are your legs and your back strong enough that you can do this without getting hurt? Unfortunately, that's no longer true for me. Well, that, we all have a role, right? So you, your role is also as important as when you were starting to do this as a younger person. I had some very good team leaders when I was young, and I still remember them, and some of them are still very good friends of mine. And um, they were mentors to me, and I try to, be, I try to pass that on to the students that I'm responsible for. At the same time, we've been talking about all of the stuff that you do with Search and Rescue, but you also have a very rich and quite interesting academic background. Well, that's nice of you to bring that up. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm a climate policy scientist. I work in climate policy and in economics, and I run, or I'm responsible for a degree program in Unity College that trains students to uh, become involved in the re renewable energy business, uh, which is one response to climate change. So have you found there to be any crossover between the work that you do in one area and the other? Well, there is, and, and this is the way and, and you'll only get this from someone who teaches general education at a college, right? But, but what is your understanding of the good society? What kind of a society do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a society where volunteering is recognized and important, where there are organizations that will come look for you if you get lost in the woods, where you wouldn't necessarily get billed for an expensive rescue, as might be the case in some of the countries and even some of the states in the Union. And, and you can take that same idea, the idea that there is some greater understanding of a good society that we can talk about, and you can apply that easily to climate policy. I, I have a young daughter. She's two and a half this month, and I want to be sure that she grows up in, uh, on a planet with a stable climate that isn't going to descend into the kind of chaos that when I'm long dead, she will have a good deal of trouble dealing with. And that's the connection that I make. You wrote your dissertation on American religiosity and climate science acceptance. There was a moment in American politics about um, 16, 17 years ago when I just got done with the dissertation where it seemed like religious groups might get involved in climate change politics. And they did to some extent. There were There is an organization called the National Religious Partnership for the Environment. It still exists today. And they were trying to get all of the churches, particularly the mainstream churches, um, you know, the Catholic churches, Anglican, Presbyterian, and so on, involved in um, lobbying for good climate policy. Now, the organization still exists. I'm afraid I made the mistake of thinking in my PhD dissertation that it would be more powerful than it was. Do you think it's still possible that that, that could happen? Well, I think one, one has to think about, again, the kind of society you want to live in. And I think, you know, religious organizations are very much under this responsibility as much as any of the rest of us, particularly academics, right? They share, religious organizations share with academics the responsibility for promoting a vision of the good society. Science tells us that the climate is going to get a lot more difficult for people to live with over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and, and that by the end of the century, Maine will have a climate that is more like Virginia's than the climate that we have right now. I don't know about you, but I don't think that Mainers feel, would feel good about living in a state that had the climate of Virginia. They signed up to live in Maine, not Virginia. That's, you know, if that's if we don't do better at mitigation and adaptation, we'll, we'll face that possibility. And that's what the science tells us, and so I think it's it's incumbent upon those organizations in society whose job it is to think about how a good society is constructed, and I would include religious leaders, academics, politicians, radio show hosts, 
you know, anyone who is part of the, the fabric of society that's part of the way that society ponders such questions, I think it's incumbent upon us all to think about it. And to my mind, the connection between search and rescue and planetary rescue, if you will, is, is pretty clear and straightforward. The, one of the reasons I left the British military and I cut my career short was because it was pretty clear at the time that we were not heading into a good place as far as the global environment. In the 1980s, we were just starting to become aware of global environmental problems, and I felt like I needed to get involved in those, and I have, but I've still kept my interest in search and rescue. Is there some aspect of the work you're doing, um, maybe an attempt to do something really very practical and very concrete in the face of this very almost amorphous and difficult conversation about climate change where you know we can't just recycle and compost and then we're going to bring the temperatures down i I think it, it is a very difficult problem and and so as a result of that a large number of people in the United States and around the world just kind of give up on it. It's, it's uh, what we sometimes call in academia a wicked problem, uh, which is a good use of that old New England term, wicked. But it, it really is complex and difficult, and a lot of people give up on trying to understand it without even trying. Um, part of the problem, I think, is that whilst there are simple, straightforward things that we can do, they're not necessarily easy. It's hard to use less fossil fuels, Um, particularly if you have, for instance, a home that is heated with oil, if you have a family that you need to look after in that home, if you can't afford to buy an electric car, or in many cases in Maine, electric cars are impractical part of the year. Um, It's difficult to know what to do. Um, And, you know, scientists, we love complexity. I mean, we, we deal in complexity, and there's nothing I like more than being able to understand complex systems. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm naturally predisposed in the same way that I used to be predisposed to figure out the innards of a jet engine. I'm naturally predisposed to figure out how the climate system works and how climate policy works. And we like that kind of complexity. But it doesn't help us when we have to explain things to ordinary people. And I think that's part of the problem. Um, You know, for nearly a generation now, climate scientists have been trying to avoid something that we sometimes call runaway climate change. And this is the situation where our climate begins to spiral out of control. It's no longer easy to understand where it's going to end up. And Internationally, we've set a goal of two degrees Celsius global warming, and we're trying to limit anthropogenic climate change to two degrees Celsius global warming. And we've told ourselves, for pretty good scientific reasons, that if we can do that, then we're going to avoid this very dangerously destabilizing runaway climate change. I don't think we've done, done a good job of communicating the potential horror of dangerously destabilizing climate change. Most people imagine, I think most people that 
uh, thinking about climate change in the United States, imagine things are just going to get a bit warmer. And they probably will. More than likely, that's what happens. Things just get a bit warmer. Maine finishes up by 2050 with a climate more like that of southern New York State by the end of the century with a climate more like that of Virginia if we don't do anything, if we don't mitigate. But what's really scary about that is if you allow that to go forward, if you don't mitigate, if you don't reduce fossil fuel emissions, then you stand this increasing chance of encountering this runaway situation, this dangerously destabilizing climate change. And, you know, scientists are naturally reticent and conservative, and we don't like to do what politicians do, which is to scare people with scary stories that make them vote for, you know, politicians that are, you know, that have simplistic views of things. Scientists have avoided talking about dangerously destabilizing climate change, but everything we're doing internationally is based on the attempt to avoid runaway dangerously destabilizing climate change. And it may only be a very small chance. Maybe it's, you know, maybe what happens is the climate warms and then it warms a bit more and then it warms a bit more. And it doesn't really get to too terrible, uh, you know, a situation and it sort of levels off and, and there's a good chance that that might happen. But there's also a good chance, and we know this from some of the work that some of my colleagues have done, even some of my colleagues at Unity College, that there are built-in feedback loops in the climate system that allow it to spiral out of control. I have a colleague, Kevin Spiegel, who goes around the country looking for uh, times in geological history where we've had rapid climate change. And he uses lake sediments to, you know, in palynography, pollen analysis of lake sediments on the basis of pollen and other uh, variables to try to figure out when those things have happened. And they have happened. There have been times when the planet's climate has warmed dramatically as much as 10 degrees Celsius over a very, very short period of time, a few decades. And, you know, human society is not organized to deal with that kind of change. It would be very, very difficult, and it would lead to a lot of civil and social unrest, if not war. And we need to do what we can to avoid that. And as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I don't think climate scientists, I mean, we've, I think climate scientists have typically avoided talking about the potential for a dangerously destabilizing climate change whenever we've had the chance to talk to the media. You're giving me an opportunity today to talk to the media. We've, we've tended to stick to, you know, the straightforward, well, you know, Maine is going to finish up with a climate more like that of Virginia if in 100 years' time if we don't do anything to reduce fossil fuel emissions. And, and you know, there are probably some people out there that are thinking, you know, Virginia's got a nice climate. I'm not worried about that. And it's entirely possible to think, you know, to be a, a reasonable human being, and, and perhaps if you're not that interested in things like forests and habitat and moose and lynx, you know, perhaps if you don't understand about those things, you may not think it's such a bad thing. You, know, you might think, well, it's going to be warmer. That's nice. I can grow tomatoes out of doors without having to worry about it. But it's that small possibility that in addition to that kind of warming, we risk dangerously destabilizing or runaway climate change. I think, I think that's the thing that we have to avoid. And the way to avoid it is to reduce fossil fuel emissions. It's unfortunate that there are an enormous number of wealthy people around the world who own, have ownership rights in fossil fuel. And 
they're just naturally going to do whatever they can, despite the fact that they have children and grandchildren. Right? That they somehow they believe that either the climate science is not correct, or that perhaps they'll be rich enough that these horrors won't fall on their children and grandchildren. Is that what they're thinking? I don't really know. I mean, I don't get to talk to that many rich people, but it beggars belief that anyone who really anybody who was a intelligent person who wasn't you know who wasn't afraid of ideas who had studied climate science who had children and grandchildren it, it beggars belief to me that they would be unwilling to adopt sensible mitigation technology especially when and, and this is what I find is very important I've been involved in I'm, I'm primarily an econ economist a policy uh, a policy wonk, a policy PhD, is primarily an economist. And I can demonstrate quite easily that renewable energy is now as cheap as a lot of fossil fuel and getting cheaper all the time. And so it, it's not even that this would really cost us anymore. Um, luckily, you know, there are plenty of commercial interests that are on the side of climate change, the insurance companies, the big tech companies, you know, who don't have ownership in fossil fuel. And so I think this will sort itself out in the long run. The question is, will it sort itself out in time? And that's what worries me. That was a lot. You, you got quite a lot. You got a few, a few large paragraphs there with just one question, didn't you? Well, I, th I think it's exactly as you've said. I think if you're willing to come in here and talk to us about what's actually going on from your standpoint as a scientist and as an economist, then it's worth listening to. Well, thank you for that. Um, you know, I, I thought I was coming here to talk, talk about search and rescue, so it's great that I got a chance to talk about well, the rest of my work, too. Searching and rescuing the planet, I think, is also at least at least rescuing. I think we've already found it, from, from what I can tell. Yeah, we know where it is. We know where it is. Third we, rock from the sun. There you go. I've been speaking with Dr. Mick Wormersley, who is a professor at Unity College and the faculty advisor to the Unity College search and rescue team. You've given me a lot of things to think about, and I really appreciate your coming in today. You're very welcome. I'm glad I could be here. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 287, Unity, Education, Search, and Rescue. Our guests have included Dr. Melek Peter Corey and Professor Mick Wormersley. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and follow us on Facebook. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see our Love Main Radio photos on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Loving Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Unity Education Search and Rescue Show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee.
Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Lisa Belial. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.